It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 67 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-conspirator, my cohort, my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the Jay himself, Jerry Bajoris. What's going on, the Jay? Extraordinarily pumped up this week. Hey, Ed, for the big six, seven of what's real. As you know, I normally have the purple hue. This week, I'm kind of incredible hulking it. There's a green hue around me, as I would have said yesterday on 420 when we first recorded and had <laughs> issues. But I'm still pumped up and doing good as we're re recording the opening variety hour, which might be a little shorter than the hour, but still doing a, a top tier opening as we do here on what's real. And I'm nice and pumped. Hey, yo. That's right, man. We got a loaded show for you guys this week. Uh, of course, we said we're going to head on down to the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs for a double feature. And the two movies that we're going to be taking a look at this week are Mother's Day from 1980 and the Lucio Fulci Gore classic from 1981, House by the Cemetery. On Thursday Night Prime, we're going to continue on with some more Chuck Bronson goodness with Death Wish 5. That's not it. We're also going to have a biography on Stone Cold Steve Austin that premiered last Sunday night on A&E. We're going to take a look at that. We got goofs or goofs and much, much more. So the J, let's just get into it, shall we? Uh, First and foremost, uh, big breaking story of the day yesterday. Uh, Derek Chauvin found guilty on all three counts uh, that he was facing. So it's nice to see a little bit of accountability uh, brought back into the world. Uh, we're obviously not going to get into it super deep, but obviously that's something we wanted to start the show off with uh, as far as episode 67 goes. Yeah, it's a it's a good start in the right direction for our country. Hey, you know, uh, so so many crazy things go on, going on, of course, um, amidst a year plus long pandemic to boot and, and still just a lot of police killings. I mean, they're still going on as we speak, unfortunately. But uh, within this specific verdict, uh, hopefully this is a step in the right direction for social justice. And, and that's the key word here. It was justice. I mean, the videotape doesn't lie. I mean, come on. Like that's, that's the thing. I think a lot of people were holding their breath because of our past history as a country with these situations. And uh, again, I, I would like to reiterate myself personally. I know you have a different take and we, we don't want to get too political and stuff, but I support the good cops is the bottom line and I won't diatribe. But at the end of the day, in this situation with the video footage, this had to happen. Thank God it did. And, and it's a step in the right direction for American justice, hopefully. Yeah, we have a long way to go, but as you said, it's one step forward, so hopefully it's not two steps back from this point moving on. Um, We'll leave it at that, I guess. That's probably about as good as we could put it without diatribing here, so we're not going to do that. Um, But as far as the show goes, and this is kind of like the subject matter that we talk about on here on a week-to-week basis, uh, one of the biggest stories in the last week has been the after-WrestleMania cuts um, so real quick, the Jay, we'll just run down the roster of people that were cut. There were nine people that were removed. First up is Mojo Raleigh. Um, you think he's going to go somewhere else and, and wrestle? Do you think this is the last we see a Mojo? What do you think the uh, the best option is for him moving forward, the Jay? 
as they say within the realm of professional wrestling, hate you, anything can happen. So, of course, that disclaimer. But with Mojo uh, specifically, he's a former NFL player, so I'm sure he has some financial backing with himself, let alone the fact he has had a, a significantly long uh, WWE career, all things considered. I mean, he's been there a handful of years uh, stemming from NXT. Uh, I was never the biggest Mojo Rawley guy. I mean, he had a good personality, kind of over-the-top hype guy and stuff like that. You know, in-ring, he was kind of just a big brute you know, kind of unorthodox, you know, nothing special there for sure. And with his NFL background, like I mentioned, and in uh, probable financial status, I don't see him going anywhere. I don't think he's a fit in AEW and anything other like under that. He doesn't fit the bill to me as somebody that would be on like the indie scene and things. So in my opinion, I think uh, Mojo Rawley's going to find uh, some, some other things to do with his time. Yeah, I kind of agree with you there. I think we're going to see him kind of head off to another career path. You never say never, but that's just the way I see that shaking out. Uh, next one's going to be a guy we haven't seen in the WWE for some time, but it's a very notable name considering we see his brother all the time and his father is you know, practically a Hall of Famer at this point. That is Bo Dallas. Um, I actually see him potentially going somewhere else and doing something. I don't know if it's going to be AEW or anything like that, but I think that if he wants to continue working, he probably could. That's the thing with the current climate of, of professional wrestling. There are a lot of solid options now uh, with all the content that, that our current, you know, just, uh, you know, basically American system, however you want to put it. I mean, worldwide, just with technology, there's just, you know, so many varying streaming services, so much content, which has created legitimate professional wrestling leagues from Impact uh, to another one uh, we might be mentioning down the road here that has a new cable deal to, you know, which is MLW. I don't have to be all dramatic about it. <laughs> and, and like you said, of course, uh, the big, the biggest one other than WWE, AEW. And I'm with you. I don't see him in AEW, uh, but I do see him if, if he does want to continue his professional wrestling career, definitely finding a, a spot in like somewhere like like impact or even ring of honor. Okay. Uh, next up would be Wesley Blake, probably known best from his time with Blake and Murphy and NXT with Alexa bliss as manager. Um, he probably will continue to work somewhere. I don't think it's going to be anywhere extremely notable. Um, maybe something in impact at the most, but um, he's probably going to go back to the indie scene. I would imagine. Yeah, I was never big on Blake. You know, all due respect, that sort of thing. Um, you know, in ring, he, he was okay, but he just had no personality. He was one of those guys, in, in my opinion. And his basic biggest success was very early on in his career in NXT when he was in the tag team, and uh, they were paired with Alexa Bliss. And that's going back numerous years. So, but again, uh, there's there's a lot of places to go. Uh, he's a decent worker, even though I'm not. You know, he's not my cup of tea. Let's say, but he's still a professional wrestler has done it for a long time. So again, with the current stature of everything, if he wants to, I, I feel like he could find a place. And uh, like we said, uh, he's not an AEW guy, but maybe an impact ring of honor or MLW, one of the other ones, uh, you know, even NWA possibly there's options. Okay. Next up is Tucker, former tag team partner of Otis with heavy, heavy machinery. Um, my guess for him is he might find a place in impact or something like that. I could definitely see him working somewhere. I don't think that AEW is going to take a shot with him. Um, but I'm not saying that he might not end up there eventually. I just don't see that being the place where he goes to first to kind of get another shot. 
Yeah, he specifically is a guy out of this group that has the the size. He's probably the biggest guy out of this group. So uh, again, yeah, if he's going to continue his career, I feel like there's enough options. It's the same as these other ones that he'll find a place. And I'm in agreement with you because it's always that that second tier of AEW. Like, is this going to be one of the guys that that Tony Khan does decide to to go with? It's kind of been rejected from the WWE system, and I don't think that's Tucker. I think he'd go somewhere else. Okay. Uh, next up, I'm going to go with Mickey James. Uh, and I only think there's literally two places for her. She's either going to go to the NWA and maybe work a few shows with her husband, Nick Aldis, who is the NWA champion, or what's most likely is at least a retirement or a semi-retirement. Uh, we probably will see her back in the WWE within the next few years. And in that regard, I'm talking about her being inducted into the Hall of Fame. She's another one that goes right into mostly what I've been saying about a lot of these guys, uh, especially considering she's a female legend, in my opinion, has a hell of a run. I feel like she's a future WWE Hall of Famer uh, for her run, that, that her run was that good overall with, with her whole career. And with her age and, and the things I know, like, you know, they have a family, her and Aldis and stuff, and at least one kid, if not more, things like that. I, I feel like, in my opinion, I mean, obviously, completely her decision that it's just would be time for her to retire. Uh, but like you said, maybe, maybe it will be one of those things that um, Aldis is in NWA and that's where she decides to just join him there and, and just maybe uh, ride out her career there. Okay. Uh, next up, I'm going to bring up Chelsea Green. Um, I think it's extremely uh, likely that she ends up in impact with her fiance, Matt Cardona, the former Zack Ryder. And also she's worked impact before. Um, and I also do see AEW as a possibility because they seem to be interested in her. She was on the all out card or all in card before AEW, uh, before she signed with NXT and WWE. So I think that that's probably the likely path that she's going to take. Great call. Cause that's what I'm thinking. That's her definite two destinations. I feel joining, uh, Matt Cardona in Impact, but I feel like AEW kind of needs to bolster their women's division, and I think she would be a great addition, uh, along with uh, a couple other people we're going to be talking about soon. I, I think that's the call, well, but you know we'll, we'll just have dude, to let, see. Let's just get straight into it then, and I know exactly who you're talking about, and that's uh, Billy Kay and Peyton Royce. Exactly. Um, I think I think AEW would be stupid to not pick them up because they don't have an act like that and they don't have a preeminent women's tag team. Um, I don't know if that's in their plans or anything, but it would be a smart move. Yeah, because Peyton Royce also has the the connection with an AEW with her husband, uh, oh, Sean, Sean Spears. Spears, who's an AEW. So I mean, that always helps. It truly does. It's like anything in life, who you know, and things like that, at least to open the door. But you and I were always big on the Iconics. I think they're unique. You know, they get the, they're Australian, got the Australian accent. There's some stuff that you can do that there with character. They always had good character. Um, that It's going to change, of course, but even their WWE music and their entrance uh, was always cool as a package and things like that. But yeah, I, I was always high on them. I was They were actually one of the bigger surprises of this group. So um, yeah, I feel like out, out of all of these guys, uh, they're two that AEW should definitely consider. Uh, next up is Kalisto. Um, the reason why I waited so long to mention Kalisto, uh, because he's nowhere near as a big of a star as some of these people are, is that I think 
he can do whatever he wants. He has probably more options than anybody. I think AEW is a possibility. Impact would be a possibility. A company like ROH or MLW would be a possibility. And then for him, the ultimate possibility is to go back and work for the plethora of Mexican uh, wrestling companies that exist and are still functioning. I think he literally could work in any one of them. Even though I'm not his biggest fan, I do think that he's good in the ring, and I think that there's plenty of guys he could find as competition at any one of those places. I'm in total agreement with you, and I am a pretty big fan of Kalisto. I think he's really, really good. I think he definitely would have some killer matches with some of the Lucha guys that they have, you know, Ray Phoenix in particular in AEW. Oh, yeah. That's where he does end up. And like you said, a, you know, big aspect of, of any Luchador is just ending up back in Mexico. So, you know, we'll have to see. But, yeah, Kalisto is a top talent, so I, I feel like he's definitely going to flourish somewhere. And without a doubt, the biggest name on the list, specifically because he was one of the commentators on WrestleMania this year. I'm talking Samoa Joe. This was probably the biggest surprise of all. Big surprise. Uh, I think a lot of people are kind of saying that it's because he wanted to get back into the ring and he was not cleared by the WWE. We've seen several situations with this through the years, like with Edge, with Daniel Bryan, with Paige. Um, and I think that Joe is one of those guys that he wants to get back in the ring to kind of finish up his career. And he's more than happy with leaving and doing so. And I think that there's plenty of places for him to work as well. I think AEW would certainly be an option. Impact would be an option. I even think Ring of Honor could be a potential option for him, depending on what they wanted to do. Um, and I also think, too, that let's say that he's only really looking to commentate from this point forward. I think that most of those companies could probably use them in that capacity too. So right there along with Kalisto, Joe probably has the most options of anybody that we've mentioned up to this point. I'm with you there. And the J is all in on Samoa Joe and AEW. See what I did there? Hate you. But yeah, I I, agree. I think that's his best option. Um, He's, he's, probably riding towards retirement with the injuries in his age and, and how many miles he has on him. So why not go to the next biggest option? If the number one biggest company is not clearing you and the possibility of the doctors within, you know, hopefully obviously safely can clear him in, in AEW, just the different doctors. I, I feel like that's where he needs to go to end out his career. Okay. So sounds good. That is not it. The J kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. Uh, MLW is reportedly scheduling uh, to return to taping content with fans in the crowd this July. Uh, But noted on Monday night, MLW revealed that they are set to premiere on Vice TV this spring. Specifics of the new TV deal have not been confirmed by the promotion, but the PW Insider uh, has revealed new details, noting that the MLW Vice TV debut will happen in May. They're going to be the lead in to Dark Side of the Ring. And they're going to be showing like uh, archived content because they don't want their first impression of their product to be empty arenas. Um, So what they're actually going to do is they're going to probably start to record some stuff as soon as they can get in front of a live audience again and get that on Vice TV as soon as humanly possible. Um, Definitely a great deal for them. And it's not an exclusive deal either because they're going to keep their shows and their current deals with Dazen, with BN Sports. Uh, MLW Fusion will continue to be on BN Sports on Wednesday nights, uh, as well as on YouTube and Fubo Sports, uh, and also their Roku channel as well. So they're trying to get on more platforms, and the fact that this is not an exclusive deal uh, just happens to be better news for MLW, because they're going to keep all their previous spots, and now they're going to get a bigger one 
uh, as a lead into Dark Side of the Ring on Vice TV. So it is a cable deal, and it's going to put them right up there. I mean, this technically puts them in front of more eyes almost than even what Ring of Honor does with its syndicated TV every week. Yeah, dude, this this appears to be a very advantageous deal for MLW. And I like Court Bauer a lot. Court Bauer's the owner and proprietor of MLW. And I listened to him on their podcast network for a long time. Uh, back in the day, it's been a while. But, uh, you know, listen to tons and tons of Court Bauer, um, his stories within WWE. He was formerly in WWE and worked uh, under Vince McMahon and Stephanie McMahon, always had really good stories. He has that experience. So I'm pulling for him. But, yeah, this is a really good deal. I, I've seen flashes of MLW. Hey, I don't know how much you've caught, but the fact that I haven't seen too much of it and I hear a lot of good things, you know, within um my, my little wrestling world of, of who I have and follow on wrestling Twitter and different things. So I'm actually really looking forward to that since I haven't seen too much of it, especially if they are going to try to impress the fans with some of their best of from the past, you know, to kind of build things up. And I think that's, you know, a great lead in and hand in hand thing with dark side of the ring, which I'll be watching. So that creates for myself personally, a cool little Thursday night package. You know, I'm going to check out uh, MLW's product. And then of course, one of my favorite shows is, is dark side of the ring right now and that's right around the corner season three starting on may 6th so i'm looking forward to seeing this and we'll see what happens with the possible growth of of mlw and like you mentioned in front of a lot more eyeballs yeah and it's going to be good for them too because i think that they were a company that kind of rose to a little bit of prominence since their relaunch um but unfortunately it was because they were using a lot of the talent that we saw go and you know formulate the core of aew uh, things like that, like L- the Lucha Bros and Young Bucks, and a lot of those guys were wrestling there until they, you know, moved on to other companies. So hopefully, something like this can at least let them get a little bit more consistency as far as their roster goes moving forward. And at the very least, they can have a more consistent product with more consistent roster members instead of constantly influx of guys in and out kind of thing. Because that that definitely hurts companies. I think we're seeing Ring of Honor currently; they've been in that stage now, going on for a couple of years. Because uh, once the Young Bucks and all those guys got out of there, you know, they, they were kind of left holding the bag. And, you know, maybe this means, too, that, you know, whenever companies use outside talent like that, they're not necessarily going to put them over their own talent. Because, you know, once they leave, you know, they take fans with them and you don't really get that back. So uh, it's going to be interesting to kind of see how, uh, you know, MLW moves on from here. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head that goes all the way back to the 90s and ECW. You know, yeah. the, the ECW it's the name of the game. Scourged, so it's, it's, it's business. It's what dude, it is. Ring, of, Ring of Honor's had that same thing happen to them exactly. five, six times through the yeah. years. So, you know, it's just how well companies can deal with that sort of thing. Exactly. Uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up on the show, if you guys listen from time to time, I know there's not, not everybody knows me and Jared personally, but if you do know us, you know that we are massive fans of The Simpsons. And it just so turned out that last week after we did the show, I like sent you this article and I'm like, fuck, of course I found this right after the show. Uh, But the HollywoodReporter.com put out a pretty interesting article uh, last week titled Steamed Hams at 25. Simpsons cast and crew attempted to decipher classic moments, extraordinary cult following. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have no idea what this is. Um, It was an episode called 22 Short Films About Springfield. 
Um, and there was specifically one episode called Skinner and the Superintendent, in which a befuddled Principal Skinner tries to impress his boss, Superintendent Chalmers, via a luncheon at his home that quickly descends into a series of ridiculous lies and chaos, and it would go on to become one of the most popular moments in the show's running 32-year history. Um, it's definitely one of my favorite pieces of comedy of all time. It's really impressive. Uh, you know, it's a three minute skit and it's a three minute long joke and it's really complex and it's really fucking funny. So if you guys want to know what this is or you want to check it out, if you just go on to YouTube, type in steamed hams, you'll see what the actual, uh, you know, the actual skit was. So we'll have to check on that. And, uh, you know, you guys, or I'm sorry, we don't have to, you guys ought to check on that and get back to us if you've never seen it before. Cause I love showing this to people, like even people that I know aren't really big fans of the Simpsons. I kind of like show it to them and just see, to see their reaction. Cause I think it's kind of a universal piece of comedy. It's, it almost reminds me of like a modern era, like who's on first or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. dude. It's so funny. And it, it's no coincidence that it's two of the characters that throughout this 32 year history of the Simpsons stand out as having some of the best chemistry, you know, superintendent Chalmers with always the classic Skinner going back to when we were in fucking <laughs> like fourth grade, as we always say, as crazy as the longevity of the Simpsons show is, but yeah, this was a, a groundbreaking and classic episode and uh, definitely listen to Hey Ed, advice if you haven't seen it at all even just to check it out on youtube because it's a, a three three minute skit but if, if you're a, a simpson head like us and you're familiar with the episode uh, take a look at our reference article on the hollywoodreporter.com the article is titled steamed hams at 25 simpsons cast and crew attempted to cipher classic moments extraordinary called following and it's a really good article this was really cool yeah and it was nice to hear hank azara kind of going on about the actual skit and what it was and they exactly really they break it down so well. it. it has yep. the writers it's it's a really cool piece especially for someone like us that you know like we've thought that was one of the funniest things ever for so long to kind of see this articles like it, it's almost mind-blowing to a degree um but we're, we're kind of breezing through subjects here because uh, like we're on a truncated time this week. Uh, but another big thing that I wanted to bring up to Jay is Kobe Bryant and Nike's contract has officially ended. Um, and that is due to uh, Vanessa Bryant. Uh, his widow uh, is not renewing the contract. Uh, so Kobe and Nike are officially done at this moment. A lot of people are citing um, product availability as one of the issues. And we talk about this all the time on the show. Nike likes to push hype and they like to push limited availability. And that is something that Kobe Bryant and his family have not been too thrilled about with Nike feeling that they should have more product available for the fans. Like they, they feel like they're being taken advantage of in the situation. So I understand uh, their feeling on it. Um, and I understand too, that they might do business again in the future. This could just be a bargaining chip, but it's pretty interesting um, because this directly butts heads with Nike's bottom line and how they do things. They don't like people and they don't care who you are. They don't like people telling them how to do their business, even if they have a deal with them. And this is one of the biggest people like this can really change things. Like if Vanessa Bryant gets pissed off enough and takes this, the, the Bryant brand, so to speak, over to Adidas or somebody else, it could cause quite the reaction in the shoe world. So what do you think in the J on this? 
I'm, I'm thinking it could hopefully exactly like you said. I mean, we, we bitch week in and week out of not getting the got him on the sneakers app and things like that. I, I go back to, cause I just like, especially after his passing, which is crazy as it is just about a, a, a year around this time. It's been a year uh, was I wanted his, his official Jersey and they dropped it on the sneakers app. You know, the one special Jersey, like the, the, um, the really cool like snake one, you know, it was, it was, oh, yeah. it was like the, the Mamba Jersey. And of course it sold out in like a record, it's insane. It was like sold out in less than three minutes or whatever it was. And that's just ridiculous. Like the guy just passed away and his fans want a Kobe Jersey and you can't even get one. And as we've mentioned and broke down, you have people that don't even care about Kobe snatching them up so they can hit you over the head in the resale game. So hopefully this is a step in the, the right direction to kind of start trumping that kind of, you know, situation. However, this isn't set in stone yet, as, as the article here on Sneaker News says. Of course, Vanessa Bryant, the widow of the late Kobe Bryant, did not renew the contract like Hey Ed broke down. But according to sneaker industry insider Nick DePaula, Vanessa Bryant did not renew the contract. Kobe and Nike are done. However, this merely means they are, that they are possibly in a negotiation phase. So this could be far more compensation or other incentives, such as the official naming of a Kobe Bryant building inside the world headquarters, or simply a deal that aligns with that of LeBron James and Michael Jordan, who have bigger deals than the Kobe deal at this point. So this can also uh, alter from where it stands as well if negotiations continue. But again, I think Vanessa's doing what's what her late husband would want, which is get the product into as many fans that would pay for it that is possible. And as we mentioned, dude, that's just good for for sneakerheads and, and fans of Kobe and, and things like that in the long run. And it's frustrating because I think Nike could do both. Like, I think they can have certain things that are limited, but like, there should always be a jersey. There should always be like a Kobe Bryant t-shirt or, or his logo shirts or something. Like, they've done that with Jordan for a while. Like, we talk about Jordans here on the show all the time. Those are the limited Jordans. A lot of those were big when we were young. That's why we want those. But you can walk into a Foot Locker at any point in time and get Jordan brand shoes. They're not the most hype shoes and they're not like the most popular ones that they have. But if you are an absolute fan of Michael Jordan, you have no problem going and getting things with his logo on them whenever you want them. It might not be the most highly awaited or the most hyped or the most expensive or whatever. You might, that might not be the case. But if you are a simple fan of Michael Jordan, you can get these things. And I think that that's kind of what Kobe wants. And it makes sense, too, because you think about it. How is Jordan's brand built? You know, like people couldn't get enough of them. So it was commonplace that that icon is iconic, period. And I think that by Nike currently running their business the way that they do with limited availability, then it, it kind of takes people down a step. So it's like these guys are like, I can't be as big of a star as Michael Jordan, even if I was as good of a player as him, because the way they do their business now is not the same way they did business when he was in his prime. So you just can't reach that level. It's not even possible. And I think that's kind of, I think a lot of this, honestly, as far as Vanessa Bryant goes, has a lot less to do with money and a lot more to do with legacy. Exactly. And it's just the whole current Nike system, and we won't diatribe again. It's just it completely screws over like true fans and things. And, and I'll say this, hey, and I'll, I'll speak for myself, not both of us, but, uh, and I know you're in the same boat, 
we're very fortunate, you know, and, and we're adults now that are still into this. Like we have the actual income to, to even go after these things. And as you know, and, and we've talked about it too, you, you, you're on the same boat. You snagged a, a handful of, of sneakers over the past few weeks. And, and I've, I'm two for two with my last gottings. So, yeah. you know, it's amazing. But my point is we, we can actually afford it and get it. Like what about the kids that don't even have a chance? that really want it, you know, like the inner city kids that love Kobe and stuff like they don't even have a chance. And my point is if we, you and I aren't getting a lot of these and going for them and, and we have the technology and the time and the money and everything, like think about the true fans. And like I said, inner city kids that get screwed over and stuff. And, and I'm hoping in the end, like that's, that's what this all remedies. Well, and you brought up an even more important point because you're talking about the inner cities. This is where a lot of people don't have the money to access these things. So they can't get them. But people still get them by doing whatever they got to do to get the money. And that is, or maybe a kid gets a birthday present, let's just say, for example, right? And that product puts a target on the back of that person now because it's a hyped item. It's like we, we come from a different era too, where it was like, you know, back in our day, like if you had certain shoes and shit, that was fine, but you better be able to keep them. And by that, I mean, like, if you're going to walk around with the freshest Jordans in school, you better be able to fight to keep them on your feet. (laughs) People will take them from you and there's nothing you can do. It starts to become a jailhouse mentality. And Nike perpetuates that shit because it helps build their brand. It's ridiculous. And it causes further problems. And it's really no reason for it other than just to build the hype machine. Yeah, we we covered a... a a documentary on Jordans and sneakers, a handful of, you know, pretty long time ago on the podcast actually, but they, you know, they covered that uh, distinctively with even having the family of a victim uh, and even like pretty, pretty crazy footage for that documentary of like the crime scene. Like that's, that's how crazy it gets. Like that's no joke. Like you're not blowing that out of proportion. And look, we love this stuff. Okay. Like it's pretty clear. Everything we talk about on the show is stuff that we genuinely love nobody's life is worth a pair of shoes. Let's just be honest. Of course not. So I had to just, I just felt the need to say that on here just so people understand. I mean, not that anybody listen doesn't understand that, but like, come on guys. At the end of the day, they're shoes. We wear them. No matter how much we like them, we're not going to have them forever. They're going to deteriorate. It's not the end of the world. Okay. Um, And I also wanted to mention too, um, of course, Kobe Bryant getting re- getting ready to go into the Basketball Hall of Fame next month. It's been announced that David Robinson will be presenting Tim Duncan. Isaiah Thomas will be presenting Kevin Garnett. And none other than the GOAT himself, Michael Jordan, will be the presenter for Kobe Bryant. And that's very cool. And that's very fitting. And that, dude, that's something I really want to see that. I think that Hall, I've watched bits and pieces of Basketball Hall of Fame inductions through the years. I'm going to watch this whole one because it's one of the best classes they've ever had. This is going to be legendary. And you hit the nail on the head with that word. Hey, this is going to be a a classic induction. So I'm right with you. I'd like to watch it. And dude, just as a real quick side note here, uh, we've mentioned this very quickly on the show in the past. Uh, You've been a Spurs fan for a while. Um, Dude, Tim Duncan going in, like there's not too many guys more deserving. And, you know, the Admiral putting him in, uh, I'm not a Spurs fan, and even I'm looking forward to that. I think that's yeah. going to be really cool. 
got me drooling because I, I said the, the whole thing behind that, it's not like a random bandwagon thing because they started winning championships. I was a fan before that as a kid because one of my good friends growing up with, because as everybody knows, Pittsburgh has never had a professional basketball team. So Not in our lifetime. You, not in our lifetime, at least. And so you kind of gravitate who you gravitate to as a sports fan and, and obviously specifically an NBA fan as, as we were growing up and still to this day. And my, my good friend growing up with, he loved the Admiral David Robinson. So as you do with friends, especially at the impressionable ages, I just became a fan with that because I didn't have another basketball team. And that's my history with the Spurs. And then of course, Tim Duncan taking over after David Robinson retiring and winning championships. And he's amazing. So, so yeah, this is a loaded induction ceremony with Jordan putting in uh, Kobe posthumously. And of course the Admiral and Tim Duncan. It's amazing. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Uh, we have to take a commercial break, but there's just a couple things I wanted to, to hitch on real quick here before we go. Uh, the J, Vince Williams, returning to the Steelers. They cut him. They brought him back on a much cheaper deal. And also, Steelers extend Mike Tomlin for three more years. Good move, bad move, in your opinion. It's a good move for Vince Williams because we got him back. He's cheaper and he knows the system. So a, a few good positives going into that re-signing. And we, we said there's a lot of dissension within the ranks of uh, Pittsburgh Steelers sports fans here actually in the city because uh, Ed and I uh, cover, we don't cover, I shouldn't, that's the wrong word. We, we, you know, we have kind of our finger on the pulse of the local sports and the Steelers, of course, uh, even not just for the show, we always have. And, and through Twitter and listening to popular radio host, Mark Madden, you know, myself personally, there's a lot of the divisiveness with this uh, re-signing. Uh, Mark Madden himself is actually uh, against it. And, and I disagree. I, I think it's a good signing. I think uh, three years is the right amount of time to see what else Mike Tomlin can do with an amazing career. Um, his regular season, of course, is the standout with his his win-loss record and, and overall stats. Uh, of course, his biggest blemish is the playoff wins, but the man st- still has one Super Bowl you can never take away from him. And that may be, might be the big argument that where's the second one? Uh, you know, with having a second appearance that we lost in. But nonetheless, man, two Super Bowl appearances, uh, a Super Bowl win, an amazing regular season record that gets us to the playoffs. So if, if that's something that he could remedy within this last three years and win some playoff games, uh, I think that will cement his career as a Hall of Fame coach, which I think he already is, of course. But but yeah, the bottom line is, hey, you know, bottom line in it, I think it's a, a good re-signing Tomlin extension of three years. You know, I heard somebody reference this yesterday after this news popped out, and I thought this was a really good point. They said that Mike Tomlin's been coaching in the shadow of Bill Belichick for well over a decade, and, and I would agree with that, okay? Um, but they brought up a great point. They said, so he loses Tom Brady, they get Cam Newton, they go 7-9. and nine. Mike Tomlin loses Ben Roethlisberger for guys who are not even NFL-ready players. They go 8-8. Eight and eight. Like. I know it's not that big of a difference, but like, you know, I'm not saying that Tomlin's a better coach than Belichick because I don't think that he is, but I think he's right up there with just about anybody else in the league right now. So uh, I'm happy with it. I think it's a good move. I like the Vince William move too. I think it's a smart move uh, just to kind of shore up the team and maybe to have a little bit more depth there because we don't really know how they're going to draft quite yet as far as the second, third and beyond. Um, So I think it's two good moves, but 
We have to take a quick commercial break, guys. When we come back, me and the J are going to be talking a little bit about the brand new A&E biography on none other than Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's part of a brand new series they're doing on WWE superstars of the past. That should be very interesting and much, much more. So hang tight, everybody. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. This is it for the What's Real podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 68. We're going to have another double dose of mystery double features as we go to the last drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs. On Thursday Night Prime, we have Charles Bronson in 10 to Midnight. And that's not all as we take a look at the A&E biography on a rowdy, Roddy Piper. All this and more next week on episode 68 of the What's Real podcast. And we're back. And as I mentioned before, we went to break. It is time to get into the brand new A&E biography on Stone Cold Steve Austin. Premiered this Sunday, or last Sunday, I should say, on the A&E Network at 9 p.m. This was, of course, a look into the entire career of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, I don't think there was too many revelations in this one. It wasn't like we didn't know about a lot of stuff. But it was, let's see what they actually touch on, because there were some instances of domestic violence uh, in Austin's past that was not covered. It was kind of loosely covered, but they didn't really get into it. Um, But I thought that they did a pretty good job of explaining his career, getting some decent talking heads, um, going really early into the late part of his career. I thought that was pretty good. It felt really extensive. And I I think we mentioned this on the show when we announced that this was going to happen. I expected these to basically not be a big deal, to just be essentially WWE production versions of these. And that really wasn't the case at all. These were pretty much all new and all put together differently. Um, Although they did use the WWE footage, so they have to kind of play nice with WWE in that regard. Um, But with that being said, I thought this was overall pretty enjoyable. Yeah, it was really good. It's it's the Jays eye-rolling statement, hate you, nostalgia. And rose-colored glasses, you know, all the stuff we grew up with, the Attitude Era, the the rise of Stone Cold. I mean, dude, they mention in this biography off the bat here with our Pittsburgh connection, us being two Pittsburgh boys, that he was becoming Stone Cold Steve Austin when he was in Pittsburgh. Did you hear what he mentioned that? He shaved his head completely. He had like the weird buzz cut and he's like looking in the mirror. He's like, like, what the hell am I doing? And he did the complete bald head and the goatee. So – uh, Pittsburgh connection there for the birth of Stone Cold Steve Austin, which was cool to hear. And, and as dude, you were mentioned, and this was well put together because it's it's backed by um, like the crew members are award winning producers and directors, including Joe Levine, George Roy, Billy Corbin, and Alfred Spellman, all veterans of Thirty for Thirty. So, dude, the thing that was funny too, and I don't know this for a fact, and I, I kind of got a chuckle out of it myself. There's a strong possibility that we were at that show where he did that um that's what i was thinking 
Dude, because we've seen Austin. Obviously, we saw him as Stone Cold, the big star, but we've seen him all the way leading up to that. Uh, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show before, but I remember, obviously, King of the Ring 96 with the Austin 316 thing. And uh, we were kind of getting into Stone Cold at the time. Like, you know, like, oh, I like this dude. He's pretty good. Like, we liked him in WCW, but we liked the new direction. And I remember vividly, me and you went to a WWE house show at the time. And at the time, what we used to do as like teenagers is you go to the shows, you probably buy a program and you probably buy a t-shirt if they had something cool. So our typical thing would be to walk in, buy a program, and then eventually, you know, go to the merch table. And I remember vividly me and you going to the merch table and being like, holy shit, you see that? And it was the first time either one of us laid eyes on the Austin 316 shirt. They were not on TV. They were not. This is like shortly thereafter. And I remember we bought those shirts. We wore them like we enjoyed the event. And on Monday, that's all you saw. (laughs) We were like, dude, we were there on the ground level of seeing this dude about to blow up like everywhere, not just in us and our group of friends, but like this was a wrestling fan wide worldwide kind of a thing that happened all at once. And we all kind of looked at each other and we were like, dude, this shit is huge. Like, this is going to be a big deal. And that's exactly what it turned into. And it's weird because you don't see that a lot in wrestling. Like, you don't see a guy who's kind of kicked around for years, wrestled for a bunch of different companies, been on a a certain level, has been a champion. Like, we knew who Steve Austin was. Then he comes to WWE. He's kind of a low to mid-card guy with the ringmaster. Um, everybody talks about how bad that was, but I'm not going to lie. When he came as the ringmaster, I loved that. I was like, dude, this, this has a ton of potential, but of course they made it bad. So as much as they like to goof on that gimmick, it's not the gimmick's fault. It was how you guys did it. Cause that could have been a really good gimmick for somebody. I think Cause uh, we, we, day. we like DiBiase, the million dollar belt was on them. So it like gave it, you know, some sort of an extra layer. You know, that you're basically defending the million dollar belt each week and stuff like that. Or you'd see that on a house show. He had a really good feud with Savio Vega at that time. Even before he was Stone Cold, that was a really good feud. Really good. Really hard hitting matches. Like Stone Cold always said, he wasn't the skill guy. He was more or less the brawler and the mechanic, as he would always call himself, the carpenter. And just the pure worker and the workhorse. And and you you had mentioned it earlier. He was the, the mid-card workhorse that eventually just clawed and scratched his way into the main event picture. And, and they cover all that. But just at the, the kind of outset here, hey, you know, I wanted to say as well from my personal perspective and opinion on this, one of the, the coolest things about the overall product uh, that is this A&E biography on Stone Cold was the fact that you and I both, I, I, I've, I've personally read his book. I have several Austin DVDs. We, we saw his Ascension live, like we're talking about. We watched them live when he was stunning Steve in WCW. Then we watched him in ECW. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we saw his entire Ascension. And like you mentioned, we were even kind of personally involved buying T-shirts early and stuff. But my point is, this whole package is just everything together in like a sleek, breezy, well-paced documentary that's like you know with commercials like a little under two hours and i don't know about you but i blew through it because of that and it was just cool even though it wasn't like anything 
too big of a revelation other than I know they talk about how personal he was and, and didn't talk about his family and things. And he actually talks about his, his daughters and his relationship with his daughters for the first time on yeah. camera in this. So that was, that was a big like revelation kind of aspect of it. Other than that, wasn't anything groundbreaking that I didn't know because of how big of a fan I am in my age and coming up with them and stuff. But nonetheless, seeing all of this in one piece was just so fucking cool. Cause I haven't relived a lot of the attitude era or stone cold matches any anywhere recently. So I was in the mood for this. And, and again, yeah, just, uh, just really well paced and really fun. Dude. One of the things for me that was kind of a revelation, and this is kind of what I look for and stuff like this, because I don't expect them to hit me with a bunch of stuff. I didn't know. Like, like we said on the show before, we've been watching this for a long time. There's not a whole lot that kind of fell through our radar. Uh, but the one thing that I really liked on this that they did, because I thought it was taking something and taking it a step a little bit further than what they really needed to do, um, was the whole portion about when he almost had his career ended by Owen Hart when he did the pile driver and broke his neck. Yeah. Not only did they give more perspective from him on this time, they showed his brother. Yeah, I was like, was this, up. yeah, I was like, this is really good stuff because I've never heard anything from his family on it so like that was a really good perspective that i was like well here i come to think they're not gonna hit me with nothing new and they still managed to find something so i give them credit because they're going if they're doing that they're going above and beyond and they're trying to present this to be something that even people like me and you would get something out of which i was impressed by yeah, which I did. Like I mentioned, there there was that. You know, for the, for those not familiar that might be just listening through, Stone Cold was in a match with Owen Hart, and they did a move that was uh, similar to the Undertaker's finisher, the Tombstone Piledriver. But instead of going on your knees, which is how the Undertaker did a, hit the move to do it pretty safely, Owen Hart fell on his butt, and Austin even kind of second guessed it and was like, "Are you sure you're landing on your ass? Like, aren't you supposed to go on your knees?" And Owen said, "Like, no, this is how I do it." And so he just. He, he, he said in this documentary, he trusted Owen because Owen was a consummate professional and, and a top skilled professional wrestler, especially at that time. And they just mishapped his, his head held down a little too low and he just got spiked into the hard mat. The canvas was really hard back in those days in WWE, WWF. So yeah, he was, he was paralyzed for what had like five, five, six seconds legit. Like his entire body was paralyzed but he got feeling back and, and it was just such a scary moment. And, and again, talking about our personal perspectives, we watched that live together. Yeah. And that was crazy. And we knew immediately that something was wrong. Um, it, now, see, here's the really weird thing, because we have a long history with professional wrestling. Now, this at the time, this move was surprising to see Owen Hart do this to Austin. But the move was not surprising to us. This is a move that we had seen before. This is a move that Scott Steiner, of all people, used to use uh, at one point. And, uh, you know, it was a video game move, basically. That's kind of yeah. what we called them back in the day. Like, they weren't really real moves. They're just moves you see on a video game. But Scott Steiner used this move on a regular basis. Now, I was thinking about this a little bit. Now, let me let me get your perspective, because you've been in the ring. You've had significantly more training than I have. But this is what I came up with. Why can Owen Hart do that move to people? and be fine and why did scott steiner do that move to people and there was never any issue what was the catalyst for the problem this time and i don't think the problem was the wwf ring i think it might have been an issue but i don't think it was the reason why this happened what i think happened is 
Owen Hart had never done this move to somebody Austin's size. I'm talking 250 pounds. Uh, so the person he's doing the move to is essentially bigger than him. Exactly. And every, and every time I saw Scott Steiner do this move to somebody, I because I was even thinking about it a little bit, and the one name that came up into my head was Hiroyoshi Hase, was the dude that I remember him doing this to, who is a guy that is significantly smaller than him. So I think that's where you get into the problem is when you're doing this move to a guy that's bigger than you, you don't have the upper body power to hold him in the position where he's not going to move. Your legs are not big enough to give him the cushion where his head is, where if you're Scott Steiner and doing this move to a smaller guy, you have the upper body strength to hold the guy in a position. You have big legs and upper thighs to hold his shoulders from going you know, too low to where he hit the head. So that's my theory on it. I don't know if you've given any thought to that or if you think that I'm right on this, but I kind of wanted to get your perspective on what you think actually went wrong that time. I honestly was going to say, you know, not all the same details, but you broke it down great. So I won't diatribe, but that's, that's a great breakdown. And that's pretty much what it was. He even states in the interview here, his head was just too low and they show it in slow motion. And you could see in, in all of the things that you were discussing, as far as the details go, are probably why his head was too low. You know, Austin was, was bigger. A, a thing that was a detail that I noticed, Hey Ed, I don't know if you happen to notice this, but when, when they're telling the story about this part, when Owen Hart uh, spikes them during SummerSlam's match, they show a quick clip of the WrestleMania 10 match of Bret Hart and Owen Hart in WrestleMania 10's opener where Owen tombstone pile drives Bret, but he goes on his knees. Yep. So it kind of contradicts the whole story of even Austin telling it that, you know, because obviously he did do it on his butt in the SummerSlam match, but it just seems weird that he also did the, the knees thing when he hit Brett with it. I've seen him do both. That was kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Um, he's done now, both. So now this is kind of my thinking on that. Okay. I don't know if I'm right on this, but it's just my thinking. He did it at WrestleMania 10, right? Whose move was that known for at the time? Taker. Okay. Who's absent from WrestleMania 10? Good call, Taker, so he can get away with it. Exactly. He would have never done that on the same card as Taker. And I've seen him do both versions of it. I honestly think I can remember him doing the sit-down version more. Because you figure after 91... I can too. That's a good which, call. I can which, too. So maybe that's how he got around it. Like, okay, well, if I can't do the kneel-down one, then I'll just do the sitting one. It's basically an inverted pile driver as opposed to doing it the regular way. Yeah. Um, and I remember Owen doing the regular pile driver too. That was just a move. See, a lot of people don't realize this because the way wrestling is now, but pile drivers used to be a pretty regular move. And it was always a quality move. Like anybody could do a pretty good pile driver. We used to do them uh, in, in our backyard thing. We've done them in the ring because it's, it's a devastating looking move. That's not hard to pull off. So yeah. it's kind of a shame that it's been phased out of wrestling. I understand why, and this is part of the reason why, but it's just, this is probably the most analyzation I've put into him doing this and why he did it. But I obviously wanted to get your take on it. Cause like I said, you've had more training than me. So like what hits your eye when you see this, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's definitely what it was. He was, you know, Stone Cold's a big guy, you know, Owen 
was decent sized, but yeah, he's no, no Scott Steiner, as you were mentioning specifically in comparison. And I think that was the big issue was just, you know, and then again, you just have the, the simple fact of bad luck and there, it was just off, Oh yeah, you yeah. know, he didn't do it on purpose. So, so yeah, that was a really in-depth, interesting uh, portion of something that we've heard a lot of before. So I, I took a lot out of that. Uh, you started mentioning some of the talking heads had, and that to me is what made this as well. I yeah. Because it's Stone Cold. So you have Vince McMahon, you have The Rock, Mick Foley was great in this. Uh, yep. Of course, Taker, Triple, Triple H, H, Jim Ross, Shawn Michaels, Paul Heyman, Shane McMahon, Mark Henry, Lillian Garcia, Bruce Pritchard and even current WWE talent like Adam Cole and Kevin yeah. Owens popped up with some cool perspective. Uh, a guy we referenced on last week's show uh, randomly talking about some some wrestling fans. That's PW Insiders Mike Johnson and Dan Katz of Barstool Sports were part of it. And then, um, of course, like you mentioned, which was huge, his family having two of his brothers, Jeff and Kevin, and his uh, youngest sister, Jessica, and getting their perspective on growing up with them and things. So those talking heads really made a big impact on this documentary as well. Yeah, and overall, I got to say, this is something, and and you can go back and listen to it, because there's an episode where we announced this uh, as a news story. And I was kind of like, eh, not that big of a deal. They do stuff like this. It might be good to get more eyes on it, but I don't know how much I'm going to care. After watching this first one, I care. Uh, yeah, next, I think it's, next they, week, they picked excellent guys. Every guy they, is good. Absolutely. So next week on the show, expect us to cover next week's, which is going to be on none other than Rowdy Roddy Piper, a guy who I was lucky enough to meet. And I will obviously give some perspective on that next week as well. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I also wanted to mention this too. We're obviously not going to do a full review, but they had a show on afterwards that was basically about like a lot of the WWE treasures and merchandise and, and items that are floating out there in the world and how they kind of want to get them back into their hands. So it's kind of this show where they feature a superstar. They go and meet some fans that have some really interesting pieces in their collection and they want to get those pieces back. And dude, I kind of, th- I said this to another friend of mine recently, cause we were talking about this and I said, dude, it's a few hours on Sunday night on A&E. That's basically a whole night of wrestling nostalgia. I'm <laughs> yeah. all in on that. Like exactly. that's great. So yeah. I definitely encourage everybody to check these out. I thought this one was pretty well done. Um, even if you're a fan of stone cold, I think you'll still uh, pretty much enjoy this one. But, uh, I think that the, the jury is in on this one for me and you, the J. And I say that we both probably enjoyed this one a lot more than we expected to. Yeah, really good. Like I mentioned, there was things that stood out, which is surprising for guys like us that were there doing the whole thing live and things like that. Great detail, great talking heads. Uh, like you said, it was just a nostalgia ride, super fun, and it's setting up a hell of a series. And for those of you that are into what we talked to here on What's Real, spring into summer here is going to be really heating up because we're full blown on Joe Bob, which is coming up. We have this A&E bio series. Dark Side of the Ring is coming back. So, you know, we still got Thursday night prime every week pumped up here. Hey, you know, just speaking of all this stuff. Hell yeah, man. So let's take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to get into one of those very things that the Jay said. We're going to head on out to the last drive in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs. And we're going to check out Mother's Day from 1980 and the Lucio Fulci insane classic from 1981 House by the Cemetery. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey everyone, it's the Jay from the What's Real Podcast. Here today to talk about churchillpictures.com. 
Churchill Pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in Churchill Borough, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jared Bajoris and Damiano Fusca began collaborating on their first feature film in 2007, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival in 2012. Go to churchillpictures.com to check out our original trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, the entire history of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW, exclusive independent wrestling content, and exclusive videos showcasing our next huge film project entitled The Marks. This includes an appearance from our character, the feature presentation, Johnny Starr, on the streaming talk show, Alone Together Pittsburgh. We are Churchill Pictures. Established from the bond of two childhood friends, we envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures. Picture the possibilities. Go to churchillpictures.com today. And we're back. And if you would come along with us, folks, we are going to head out to the last drive-in and see our buddy Joe Bob Briggs this week for a double feature of Insane Goodness. Of course, as I mentioned, the first up is going to be from 1980 from director Charlie Kaufman. And we're talking Mother's Day. And of course, none other than the 1981 Lucio Fulci gore masterpiece, House by the Cemetery. But first up, it is Mother's Day. Not technically, but it is here on the show. And what we're talking about is Mother's Day. Mother's Day is essentially uh, three girls discover that two men are willing to do anything to impress their mother. And what impresses mother is watching her sons commit acts of rape and murder. <laughs> now, these women are prisoners and lowered to pawns in the game of checkers between two dimwits and their manic mommy. And the question becomes, can any of them escape alive? Now, this sounds basically just like your run-of-the-mill, like, redneck slasher movie. But that's not really what it is. Uh, Mother's Day is much better movie than it gets credit uh, for being. Um, it has an incredible amount of character development. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which you would not expect at all, but it really does. Like, the funny thing is, now, I'll tell you right now. There's a million slasher films and there's tons of like really gross movies out there, but there's something about a movie like this when it's done that way, it, it almost kind of reminds you of like cannibal Holocaust, right? Because like you hear what it is and you're like, Oh boy, but it's so much better than what it, what it actually looks like um, because they do a lot of things technically well. And I think that Charles Kaufman is a pretty good director in that regard. And what you get, I mean, this movie is batshit crazy, obviously. There's tons of rape and murder, and it's a violent movie, and it's nuts. But that also is kind of the power that the movie has. Because with all that being said, it's still pretty well made, and it's pretty effective for what it is. Exactly. It is a trauma movie filmed in New Jersey. So, and like yeah, you said, it, but, but it's much better, I think. Than, than a lot of their stuff. No, I it's, agree. It's yeah. not like gross gore gags and stupidity. It's a. It's trying to be an actual it, movie. It's not winking at you with its jokes. It's just presenting pretty vile stuff. Yeah, they they uh, even talk about, of course, the the rape scene in particular. How they're pretty much just daring the audience to continue a lot like Cannibal Holocaust. Some you know experience like that. Absolutely. 
And, you know, the funny thing is, too, now, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. But as Jared mentioned, it's a trauma movie who's notoriously run by Lloyd Kaufman. Well, Charlie Kaufman's his brother. So it's yeah, there's not like a, a bunch big, of Kaufman's uh, involved in this. <laughs> uh, of course, the whole family, you know, worked on this one. Um, the only other movie that really, I mean, he would go on to make a few other movies. He would go on to make, uh, of course, When Nature Calls in 1985, which is another trauma movie. Uh, he made Ferocious Female Freedom Fighters in 1982. And, of course, he made Jack Harada. Uh, in 1988 that was his last foray as a director um but he would also write a bunch of movies uh he wrote squeeze play and the waitress which were two uh early sex comedies that uh kind of helped put trauma on the map trauma was making a lot of money with these sex comedies these are like uh like at the time when like porkies and stuff was really famous these were like the second run so, like, if you went and seen Porky's in the drive-in, you might see Squeeze play as the B feature and stuff like that. So, that's that's kind of how Troma propped itself up as a company. Uh, but by, you know, and, and this is pretty early on in their time period because, you know, Toxic Avengers, obviously, their most famous along with the Nukem High movies, which were mid-80s. This is from 1980. So, Troma wasn't really, you know, they didn't really know, know where they were going with their company at the time. But Mother's Day ended up being a pretty big hit in drive-ins and grindhouse theaters, uh, where it would play for years. Um, this movie, for me, um, is notorious with the video store. Uh, the Mother's Day cover is one of the most memorable covers yeah. that I remember it in the days out. of going to the video store. So that's something that Troma was really good at, especially back at that time. Um, but it's it's this is a unique choice for Joe Bob, but I was actually really glad that he showed it because... It's it, it. I like when Joe Bob, he's already showed Cannibal Holocaust, but I like when he shows movies that you have a certain idea of, but he picked them because they're nothing really like you think they're going to be. And yet another thing somewhat in common with Cannibal Holocaust is the fact that like a quarter, if not half of the main cast, like use different names and like yeah. stayed away from this movie because yep. of the content. But, but what makes it is truly the crazy family, Beatrice Pons, his mother, Michael McCleary is Adley and Frederick Hoffman is Ike. Uh, Ike and Adley just killed me. They're just the redneck goof brothers. Um, you know, Ike in particular, well, both of them, just, like you said, it, this is more layered than you would think. And both of them had completely unique personalities, which really stood out. You know, they're just goofs, but they have the chemistry. And then you throw in, you know, her as the mother, uh, just yelling at them and stuff. And then, and then of course, you just got the teenage girls that gonna that are going to be their fodder and they end up fighting back and stuff. Uh, we didn't mention the guest on this week's last drive-in was none other than the notorious um, Eli Roth. And one of the reasons I think that they played this was because this is actually, as he states, one of his favorite movies from childhood that he played at his bar mitzvah. Which yeah, I both that of was these. Hilarious. Both of these are, are two of his favorite movies. That's why they chose them. And gotcha. you know yeah. what? Yeah, because it's yep. it's funny because you know I'm not the biggest Eli Roth fan, right? And I think I've even told you this. It might even have been on the show when I was like, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of his movies, but as a fan, I like him, right? So it was kind of cool 
for him to be the guest on this show, but he was the guest as a fan. He wasn't on here being all critical director guy and everything else. So as long as they were getting his commentary from a fan perspective, I actually thought yeah. it was pretty good and enjoyable. It was really good. Yeah, it was really insightful. It was funny because Joe Bob, I mean, Joe Bob's almost, he's pushing 70, right? He's like 67-ish. Yeah, so he, yeah. he was just like, he just straight up was like, no, you did one of the things that all of us here hate when directors come on the show and you said, you're no longer a horror director. You're not a horror director. And Eli Roth like explained his stance on it. And I kind of understood that side of it. You know, he's like, well, it's just, it's used as a slight for people. And and he's like, I take my work seriously and I have a career I worked hard for and I don't want to, you know, be like, you know, practically made fun of by saying, oh, you're just a horror director, you know? So I understand that, especially he's, he's at the place now where he's working with pretty big budgets. You know, the last big film he did uh, other than the death wish, which we could get into that later. Cause we have death wish on the show again this week, but stemming from last week, me and you didn't even talk about that. That was another happy coincidence here on the show. Hey, where we're, we're doing Thursday night prime death wish. I even mentioned the death wish reboot. And then Eli Ross on Joe Bob is the special guest, which we didn't even know. So they referenced, uh, you know, death wish on here in his reboot. And I thought that was coincidental and funny. Yeah. It's uh we really got our finger on the pulse here. As it they seems say. like it, man. Yeah. Um, but basically, you know, for a movie, that I've seen, you know, considered like hillbilly horror. I've heard this movie called uh, Deliverance on Drugs before, <laughs> which I think one. is it's, it's a pretty good one for sure. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in this movie that you're not going to kind of see unless you know about the people who made it. And that's kind of why I mentioned the stuff I did about Charlie Kaufman. This is essentially what a guy from New Jersey looks at a hillbilly like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have that aspect. And of course, with that, it's going to come a ton of satire, which is, you know, obviously what a lot of this movie is. Um, now, it has to hit a lot of the boxes, essentially, to play the grindhouse drive-in circuit. So the rape and, and murder scenes in this one are, are pretty grotesque, um, as they're supposed to be. This movie is not for everybody. But it's funny, though, because like I said, man, Mother's Day is a movie that like should fail on almost every level because there's no major actors in it. Uh, the director's kind of unproven. Uh, it's kind of a weird subject to begin with. So like it's, it, it's brought up as essentially just like a B schlocky drive-in movie. Um, but you couldn't be more wrong about all this stuff because it's more than a schlocky drive-in movie. Um, it's way more competent than it has any business being considering what it is. Uh, but it's a movie that works for major horror fans and gore fans and shit like that. But it also works for people who like something that's a little bit more heady than just your typical slasher movie or just some dumb hillbilly horror bullshit. Uh, Mother's Day is much better than it gets credit for being, just even on a technical basis alone. Um, but I forgot. It's been a while since I watched this one. I knew that I liked it, but in just revisiting it uh, with Joe Bob and stuff, um, I had a pretty good time with it. I wasn't upset about it. I think this is the type of movie that is perfect for the last drive with Joe Bob. So I thought that it, it ticked all the boxes and it delivered exactly kind of what I was looking for when I sat down and watched the last drive. Yeah, I agree. I was into it Two two of the Jay's personal highlights to throw at you. Hey, uh, both involving the character Ike. He was like the big dorky, like he had like a fucked up eye and brown, like black teeth redneck mm -hmm. uh, of the the family 
And he in particular, which which kind of, again, with, with competent layering of the characters, because he had to manhandle the women and stuff, and he was a bigger guy. But he was like, and they didn't go like all full out into this, but he, you could tell he was into weightlifting which you know me with the gym and stuff. And there was like old school eighties weightlifting equipment and things and like bodybuilder posters. And he references reading a bodybuilder magazine at one point. So of course I personally got a kick out of that like little tidbit. And then the big stunt he did at one point, the girls escape and he's chasing them and he gets like, he's like going after him and he kind of fucks up and he goes flying down a hill and he does a, a similar stunt to, to a stunt I did in one of our movies, the unsung, like, you know, <laughs> it goes flying down. So I, of course, noticed that and that was a highlight. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I mean, like you said, there were some brutal scenes. I mean, I definitely don't enjoy watching a, a rape scene, whether it's a fictional film or not, but it is what it is. And I got through it. And uh, other than than some of that brutality, uh, like, like we've been talking about, man, it, it's better than you would expect, a lot more layered than you would expect really good performances from again, people that aren't any, any really known actors and things like that. So I thoroughly enjoyed this one. And uh, two uh, quotes from this one that cracks me the fuck up every time is don't you say, don't you ever say backwards again, we're citified. (laughs) And my other favorite one is disco stupid. Because I laugh every time he says that shit, but uh, you got a, a tagline for us for this one, the J. So the tagline for Mother's Day, I'm so proud of my boys, they never forget their mama. And I have another one here that is terrible. It doesn't make sense at all. It says, if you go down to the woods today, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. So as you guys know, we have a five-star rating scale for this one. I'm going to give Mother's Day three stars. Hey, I'm right with you, just a little bit behind. I did like it a lot. I went with two and a half, took a half down for for rape. Fair enough. For all our so, queens out there. Uh, next up is one that I was pretty surprised uh, that they that they were going to do. Um, not that it's some majorly difficult movie to find or anything like that. I was just really surprised to see it. And that is none other than the gore classic from 1981, from the maestro of gore himself, Lucio Fulci. This is The House by the Cemetery. Uh, In House by the Cemetery, a young family moves from their cramped New York City apartment to a spacious new home in New England. But this is no ordinary house in the country. The previous owner was the deranged Dr. Freudstein, whose monstrous human experiments have left a legacy of blood mayhem. Now someone or something is alive in the basement. And Home Sweet Home is about to become a horrific hell on earth. This movie is part of the Gates of Hell trilogy from Lucio Fulci, which is kind of weird because the three movies have nothing to do with each other at all. They're not even direct sequels to each (laughs) other. And only one movie has anything to do about hell. So that's The House by the Cemetery. Uh, Gates of Hell is the other one. And of course... Um, you know, he's most known for zombie, but that's not in this one. You know, it's, it's strange that that didn't really get in there. I think this became more of a thing like that fans would do. Yeah. That's kind of what Joe Bob was saying. Yeah. Just to like clump, clump, like some of his catalog together kind of thing. Just make it a trilogy, even though it's really not. Yeah. It's really not at all. And of course the, the third one is the beyond, which is, uh, you know, maybe my favorite, it's either gates of hell or that I kind of go back and forth, but. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about 
the house by the cemetery. Now, House by the Cemetery is mostly well known uh, for its gore, of course, but the most famous reason why it's known is none other than the performance of Giovanni Frezza as Bob, the little boy. And the, it's sad because this dude's gotten killed by people for years. Dude, like, you this gotta dude, he sucks. It to believe it. It's one of those but it's, things. It's not even his performance. It's just the goofy voice that they used to do his voice. Exactly. Um, screwed the actor. It's like, I don't know if this was a girl or a boy, but it's like, oh my God, mom, what is happening here? (laughs) It's the weird, it's super distracting. And I always tell people like, if you've never thought about punching a child, you will after you watch this fucking movie, because this dude is brutal. Um, Of course, we also have um, Carla DeMeo shows up in this one. And Paolo Malco does two, two Italian stalwarts, as well as the star of this movie, Katrona McCall, who I was lucky enough to meet years ago. Um, she's also in the Beyond. Uh, she was basically one of the most experienced actors uh, working with Lucio Fulci. It was not very nice to his actresses, to say the least. Um, but that was a really cool moment for me. Um, House by the Cemetery is a cool movie. Now, when you're watching a Lucio Fulci movie, if you're expecting just linear plot and stuff like that, you're not going to quite understand what's going on. Um, Lucio Fulci didn't make movies like that. His movies are essentially a collection of disturbing images and weirdness and just things to make you uneasy. Uh, I mean, like scenes where people are throwing up maggots for no reason or just, you know, I can there. There's tons of eye punishment in his movies. Um, there is a absolutely remarkable amount of gore in his movies, and that's because of the person we spoke about uh, last week on the show, uh, Giannetto De Rossi, uh, one of his famed effects maestros. Um, and this movie is no exception uh, to that rule. Um, it's absolutely what this movie is famous for. It has some of the most grotesque, disgusting scenes, and it is pretty amazing in that regard. Um House by the Cemetery is a movie that is funny, but it's also gross. And there's whenever you finally see the character of Dr. Freudstein, it's pretty good the way he does it. Like there's a large period of time in this movie that's building up to this. And it does. And it delivers pretty well. Yeah, it's pretty uh, creepy. As Bob gets stuck in the basement with him. Um, Now, one thing that I think that, that Fulci is always really good for in his movies is he creates a lot of dread and just tension in the air. And it's usually kind of struck to uh, beautiful music. You know, he has, uh, you know, this is Walter Rizzotti, uh, who did, he's the composer uh, for this one, which is weird because Rizzo Delani, uh, Fabio Fritzi, these are guys that typically work with, with Fulci. So this is not a regular occurrence, but soundtrack is still pretty good and yeah, still makes for, good. for a pretty effective movie um now i don't know because i know you've seen some fulci stuff I, I do know that specifically from uh experience and watching them with you i don't remember if you'd ever seen this one before did you ever see this before joe bob i haven't so jumped on okay. joe bob for a first time experience and and yeah i th- think it was atmospheric you know a lot of cool cinematography uh cool setting that, that the house was uh, the house by the cemetery it makes sense that it's like this cool Victorian house and just creepiness, you know, like you said, I mean, the, the kid was, it is what it is, but it was just funny, but it adds to it. Cause it's like, you know, like you said, it's a gory movie. It's kind of atmospheric. So at least you get like the little tension breaker with the, the goofy ass kid Bob running around, 
which I thought was funny. Uh, so yeah, a lot of a lot of highlights, man. Like the, the first kill of the the real estate agent. And they they show like basically a close up of the hole in her neck with like the blood squirting out. She like got poked with a fire poker and all kinds of organs. So that was a cool kill. Um, bunch of good gore in this, you know, cool, a cool scene where the, the vampire bats come out one of the first times they're checking out the basement and goes in her hair. Yeah. That seems oh, yeah. like that was a classic scene. That was pretty cool. So, There's, so yeah, see, a lot of highlights. He's pretty good at that kind of stuff. Like the, like I said about the eye punishment, that's right. something that he's good with. There's another scene in the beyond that is specific to me because it's pretty gross, but like there's a vat of acid that falls on someone like you said about the the bat stuck in the hair. Like I think he goes for like a lot of weird phobias that we have. Like the only thing that's missing out of the the bunch is like somebody falling in quicksand and drowning. You know what I mean? Like just the weird human fears and stuff. I think he was always good at kind of preying on stuff like that. I mean, it's pretty clear that, most like you can say what you want about Fulci, okay? You can say he's not the best director, his movies don't make sense, or what have you. But with that being said, he still manages to get a visceral reaction out of you from doing things in his movies, which is almost more impressive because you feel that would be easier if the script was really good, or if you know, like all this stuff made sense and it's you know, creating an image in your head. He doesn't do any of that. You're almost disconnected from a lot of it, but you still remember a lot of the imagery from his movies. Yeah, and and one other uh, bullet point I had hey, out of the note I made, because I guess it's kind of obvious to horror fans, but, you know, I, I kind of thought of it, and then Joe Bob and Eli in one of the intermissions kind of mentioned it, okay. that, of course, the, the video, or I'm sorry, the audio that he listens to of, Dr. Freudstein when he's in New York and it reminded yeah. me of um, Evil Dead. Yeah. You know, yeah. And they, they like kind of mentioned that similarity where he might, might have seen that or was influenced by that at this point. It wouldn't surprise me, um, but I would say this. It's guaranteed that before his passing, that's something that Fulci would have never given credit to. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I love Lucio Fulci. I'm a huge fan, okay? But by a lot of his peers, he's looked at as hackneyed. Because, and I think a lot of that goes to like zombie, for example, a lot of people might not know this, but the, the original title to that in Italy is zombie two. The original zombie is George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. So I feel like he got crucified for a lot of the things that that his producers did. And a lot of the financiers did um, where he wasn't really concerned with that. Yeah, wasn't to make the movie. Yeah, exactly. He had to deal with the money people. And, um, you know, like I said, I've been extremely lucky. I've met a lot of people that he's worked with through the years and kind of been able to build my own idea of what he was like. Um, and it's not the best image. Um, he's very difficult. Um, he's like an artist. You know what I mean? Like he will fight for his art. Um, he never really got his due and really got the budgets that he should have been working with. Now, somebody like a contemporary like his, like a Dario Argento, did. Argento used to have no problem financing his his projects where Fulci did. Um, And it's not really a mystery to understand why, because these movies, you know, most people make movies to make money. You know that, Jay. You've made movies yourself. Fulci was not concerned with that in the least. He was out to make his art. That's all he really cared about. 
So he got called difficult. He was extremely rough on actors. He was even um, blackballed at one point, they were saying. Yeah, yes. Um, and dude, he was extremely rough on actors to the point where he even said, and this is a direct quote, actors are nothing but props. Yeah, and he, he, he kind of took off of uh, Hitchcock, they were saying. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the actors are cattle. And and dude, the thing that's really weird about Fulci for people to say he's like a hackneyed director, and I don't know about how much this you know about, so I'm I'm trying to bring it up here for the conversation. Yeah, for sure. Um, did you know that Fulci wasn't primarily a horror director or a genre director? No, Fulci because that's what I know him for, of course, yeah, myself was, personally. I mean, he's the godfather of gore for a reason, right? But he got his career started. He was making. He's made sex comedies. He's made westerns. He's made uh, like he made a, a White Fang movie, which is basically like a dog in the wilderness kind of story. Um, he's done a ton of western stuff, just stuff that's really out of the box for him. Um, and by the time he was making the horror stuff, that was way later on in his career. So I thought that was really. I've always thought that was a strange mark that Fulci got is like this this gore guy, but. It, he probably has more stuff in his filmography that is outside of the genre than he does inside. Oh, it's a great point to bring up, Hey, because you enlightened the J. So, yeah, I think Fulci is one of the most interesting people that I've come across uh, through the years. Just from did you watching get to meet him? stuff. No, he was he yeah, was long so. gone. He only did one convention. He died appearance. in what, 96? Uh, 97, I think it was. Okay. He did yeah, one Fangoria uh, appearance in New York. Um, I know a few people that went to that and got some things signed by him. Um, he didn't speak English, so that was, you know, nobody really had much of a conversation with him. Um, but, you know, I've gotten some crazy stories from people about working with him and stuff. Um, he was so consumed by what he was making. Like, I, I was told a story one time where people thought he was kind of a slob because um, he would chew tobacco and he would have it like all over his shirt and shit. But what they said, like what people didn't realize is he wasn't a slob. It's just he was only concerned. He was so focused. He didn't care. Yeah. Yeah, He didn't give a shit about the way that he looked or that he didn't shower because the point is to make this fucking movie. This is what we need to do. We got to stay on budget and and things like that. So he's a really interesting guy. I think that it's a shame that he passed away when he did, because I think he was just starting to realize that he had a ton of fans around the world where I think he thought that he was just kind of forgotten about, which is pretty sad. Um, but that's certainly not the case. I mean, he's made an indelible mark in the world of horror, specifically in America and especially in Italy, even though he doesn't get the love that he should uh, amongst the mainstream. Um, he has fans all over the world. He's huge in Italy and Germany and where they kind of have less censured films and stuff like that. Um, but it's been pretty unique, too, because I, I've been familiar with a lot of his movies uh, through the years, and I, I was lucky enough to you know, be collecting DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff when they finally would put out unrated editions of his movies or for the first time an uncut version of this. And it just so happens, too, that a lot of his movies are released in the United States by either Grindhouse Releasing or Blue Underground, which are both really, really good companies. So, you know, it kind of keeps his legacy alive in that regard so that we could go back and rewatch a lot of this stuff. That's what Darcy and Joe Bob even brought up. How if you take all the gore scenes out of this, how slow it would be. But it like like she even said, why would you do that? Like that's a stupid hypothetical. Like the gore scenes are are part of the point of it, you know. And I, I didn't think it was like horribly paced. I mean, there's no, definitely some. It's uneven, parts, but it, it's yeah, uneven. Definitely, we call it, it uneven. That's a good word for it. But the build up, as you mentioned, was really good because uh, 
you know, Dr. Freudstein's like this crazy creature. Cause he's like a 150 year old corpse. Yep. Who's reanimated himself throat. basically. Yeah. And then uh, the end uh, they go into uh, like another realm with the, the wife, Mrs. Yeah. Freudstein. <laughs> so yeah. Cr- crazy. Yeah. I believe there was supposed to be a follow-up to this at some point, but it just never got made. Um, I believe that this is definitely something that Fulci wanted to expand on a little bit more, but never got the opportunity to do. Um, now, House by the Cemetery is not Fulci's best film by a long shot, um, but it's still interesting and it's still pretty good. And it definitely has the markings of a great cult film through and through. Like I said, with the gore, the goofy performance of Bob, uh, Katrina McCall is pretty good in this one. I, I think she's one of the better actresses that Fulci used to work with, which is probably the reason why he worked with her so much. Um, she was available and they were kind of used to working together. She always is pretty good at like the damsel in distress until something happens. And then she kind of needs to take control when she has to, which is also odd because at the time they really didn't give women anything like that. Um, especially in Italy. Um, Fulci is a guy that was called a misogynist many times to the point where he was so pissed off. He made a movie called New York Ripper and said like, okay, now I finally made a misogynist, a misogynistic movie. So if you really want to judge me, then there you go. Yeah. Um, Tell me about that. And that's interesting too, because like, you know, they'll say that his movies are misogynistic, but like his lead actress is the lead actor in the entire movie. And the only purpose to her being in the movie isn't just unbridled nudity. So it's weird to, to have somebody say that about a guy who seems to be putting out a, a solid female actress front and center time after time. So yeah, it's just weird. Yeah. But overall, you know, I really like uh, House by the Cemetery. The Jade, you have a tagline for us in this one. Not sure if this is official hate you up, but this is what I got. House by the Cemetery. Read the fine print. You may have just mortgaged your life. I believe that was a U.S. video one, so <laughs> which, which so. makes sense. <laughs> Um, This one I like a little bit more than the previous Mother's Day. I'm going to give this one on our five star rating scale, three and a half stars. Yeah. Yeah. Once right behind you, once again, again, hey, I go three stars on the what's real scale. So that is our coverage this week of Joe Bob's last drive in with Mother's Day and House by the Cemetery. Next week, we're going to be covering two more mystery features for you. Depends on what Joe Bob shows this upcoming Friday on Shutter. Uh, that is the last drive. And if you guys want to watch along with us, you can subscribe to Shutter uh, as well. And it's this is streaming live every Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. So if you want to check them out, if this sounds like something you may like, uh, I highly recommend you to do so. It's definitely worth the price. I enjoy Shutter. I know the Jay does too. So yeah, it's great. Can't really go wrong with that. But uh, God damn it! I was going to say this. I'm just whiz past my ear. Why am I not used to? Holy shit! All right. Uh, I'm being I held hit at the gunpoint. The Jay, I can't help you right now. I'm being held at gunpoint. Um, we'll be back right after this if we're still alive. Are we going to be alive? Uh, maybe we'll be alive after this, but hopefully we will uh, pray for us. That's all. Awesome. We'll be back right after this in the What's Real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast for Physically Fit with Kurt Angle. At Physically Fit, we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality, better-for-you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy. In a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price, we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings, superior ingredients, great taste, texture, and quality in every bag. We strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith, family, respect, 
respect, and excellence daily. Our goal is to be a small part of your life, personal growth, health, and happiness. We consider each customer to be part of our growing physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest. Set new goals daily to better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet, because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you, and a healthier you makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. It's time for Thursday Night Pride. And we're back, and uh, me and the Jay were under heavy fire. Thankfully, some mustached man showed up with a pistol and got these guys the fuck out of here. I don't even know where they came from. These dudes look like uh, hoodlums in leather yeah. jackets, and like a street gang. I don't know. but I, I escaped this week. Hey, you know, thank God, because I've been taking it. My wife's like getting pissed. I'm all scarred up from Thursday yeah, night prime. I'm totally fine. I don't even know how that happened. But yeah, you're getting it, lucky. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Next week might not be so lucky. But as we we said, it is that time once again for Thursday Night Prime. And today we're going to go back to 1994 with director Alan Goldstein with Death Wish 5, The Face of Death. Uh, Paul Kersey is back at working vigilante justice uh, when his fiancée Olivia has her business threatened by mobsters. That's basically the gist of it. This one's essentially Bronson or Paul Kersey versus the mob. And, oh, and it's uh, like the, the main Irish dude, her ex-husband, O'Shea. Yeah, who, who's a gangster. Uh, Tommy O'Shea played surprisingly in this one by Michael Parks, who is a great villain. Um, Robert Joy shows up in this one in one of the most memorable roles. Uh, now, I, I'm just going to bring this up off the bat, and I'll tell you why uh, Death Wish 5 is not a bad movie to me. Because... Now, we've seen four movies up to this point of, of Charles Bronson playing the Paul Kersey character, taking out vigilante justice on bad guys everywhere. But we've yet to see him do something like this, where for him to murder the Freddie Flake character, which is played by Robert Joy, he comes up with the idea uh, one day when he's in a store and finds a remote control soccer ball, <laughs> yeah. um, which, by the way, was never a toy that anyone needed or played with. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, but he turns it into a bomb and essentially kills Robert Joy with it, which is one of my favorite movie scenes of all time. Um, the thing that is cool about Death Wish is they they go over the top in this one because they've kind of done everything. And I know that that's looked at as like ridiculous by a lot of people, but that's what I like about this one. They managed to get a group of pretty interesting bad guys, some guys that you've seen before in other stuff, of course, um, in this movie. And they round it up by having uh, the Paul Kersey character take them out one by one. Um, now, I don't, it's weird that I don't get tired of this, but I don't. I actually like all the Death Wish movies. I don't think there's really a bad one. Um, this is probably the worst one of them all, but with that being said, I still don't think it's a bad movie. Yeah, and out the outset here, hey, you know, just um, before I forget to mention it, as you said on last week's episode, there was a specific reason that we went from the original to Death Wish 5. Yeah, like we weren't trying to make this a total Death Wish thing. 
Okay. We're probably going to do two, three, and four at some point. Those kind of group together better than the first one, which feels like a standalone. And then this one, which was made years after the fourth one. Well, that's, dude, that's what's crazy too, because Bronson was like in his 50s in the first one. Well, I was thinking about that. I was like, holy shit. And I don't know if you know this, the Jay, but do you know that they don't really know what Charles Bronson's age was? No, but that's hilarious. Yeah. So he was probably older than he was even letting Yeah, I mean, dude, he could have made these movies forever. They did pretty well. Not to mention the fact that he made five Death Wish movies. And he made, he made a bunch of other movies that are basically Death Wish movies, but they were named something else and his character was someone different. So this was kind of a trope that he fell into. He was typecast in the Death Wish thing. Um, but he made a career out of it. And it's weird because these movies are not bad with that being considered. Um, the first three movies were all directed by Michael Winner, who directed the original, which we spoke about last week. Michael Winner was a really, really good director. And then after that, on the fourth one, they had uh, Jay Lee Thompson take over, who was a very experienced director, had made a lot of stuff all over the place for different companies. Like he, he was a journeyman director, basically. Now, this time around, we have Alan Goldstein. Now, Alan Goldstein hasn't, he's made some movies, but this is what we're talking about here. Uh, Not only did he make Death Wish 5, he made 2001, A Space Travesty in the year 2000, which was a 2001 spoof with Leslie Nielsen, literally made over 25 years after the original movie came out. So that's (laughs) weird. Um, He made One Way Out, a direct-to-video movie with none other than uh, fucking Jim Belushi in the 2000s. Um, Just a lot of direct-to-video stuff. Stuff like Snake Man, uh, The Snake King in 2002. He made Memory Run in 1995 with Karen Duffy, whose biggest selling point at the time was she was an MTV VJ. So this guy is basically a hired gun. Uh, an exploitation director. Um, but with that being said, it's amazing how serviceable this movie is considering that it doesn't have the greatest director and it really isn't too bad. No, and the, the similar, similar parallel to uh, mother's day that we were talking about during our trip to the drive-in where the gangsters core group of guys are hilarious. They're just the oh, classic yes. goofs, the two brothers, the Italian, the one dies eating, um, Cannoli. What, cannoli? Oh, <laughs> dude, that, like- <laughs> that reminds me, dude, I had to bring this up. So bear with me here for a second. Okay. So the guy's name in the movie is uh, Chuck Pacconi. Okay. So the news, they show him reading the newspaper the day after. And it was like, uh, like, fuck, I'm trying to think of what it said. But it was like, it was like, holy moly, gangster Pacconi dies by uh, fucking... <laughs> like it all rhymed like cannoli that's what it was yeah holy moly holy Pacone moly dies from, dies from cannoli. cannoli yeah and I'm, <laughs> I'm just dying at this point because dude i think that like this is just my thought here if you were born and raised in new york city right around that time period like you were used to gangsters and mobsters being in the news you've probably seen them around town like it wasn't foreign to you and I think that most average people at that point were just sick and tired of mobsters. Like, 
you know, like these are guys, you know, notorious for causing crime everywhere and stuff like that. So like the whole mindset of the average guy was like, fuck these mobsters. And you see that in these movies because at one point mobsters in movies are like badass dudes and like people are afraid of them and stuff. And then by the 90s, they're all like a parody of themselves. They're like super like the dudes like, I don't need a cannoli, oh. like that kind of fucking guy. So it's funny and you see it in this movie, but like this movie, like these movies are brutal. <laughs> like there's not anything nice about these movies. They're pretty mean spirited, but it's amazing. In this one of all of them, right? You, you kind of had this uh, deal with the Paul Kersey character who, like we talked about last week, was like the bleeding heart liberal. Okay. Fast forward to the fifth movie. He couldn't be more gleeful when killing people like it's it's disturbing how much this dude has changed into just a complete psychopath at this point and it's it, the the message is completely missed and i understand why people kind of turned against these movies but it's weird because i could go back and rewatch them and still really enjoy them for what they are it's just funny too because he made so many bad decisions with his fiance. Like he could have easily protected her. Like she just went to the bathroom. It's like, dude, she was in there for long as hell. And of course, Robert Joy as Freddie Flakes is dressed in drag in the oh. first scene he's in and yep. smashes her face into a mirror and cuts her face all up because she was like a model and running a fashion company and everything. And then of dude. course she like gets out of the hospital and she's still willing to testify. And then the guys break in, which that was terrible. Cause it's like, by then you should have protection. And then he just Bronson tells her just to run up the steps of the fire escape. I'm like, as we say in the Bajoras household, as you know, Hey, you know, she's a duster. Yeah. And of course she duster. gets thrown off the roof violently as hell. Like you were saying, like brutal dude. It's like, okay. Now here we are on death wish five. Right. And these are all revenge movies. So it strikes me, since we're on the last one, to have to ask you this question. Is it safe to say that Paul Kersey's literally the most unlucky human being that's ever lived? Yeah, He's had multiple wives and girlfriends, and his kid were raped and murdered, to his buddy that lived in a ghetto that he had to go and help kill street gangs. And, like, this dude literally only deals with fucking family members and friends that are constantly under threat. <laughs> Like, what yeah. the fuck is going on? Like, you know what, you're, uh, you're an architect, Paul. You can afford to move to somewhere where shit like yeah. this does not happen. Move to fucking Montana, dude. For Christ's yeah, sake. I, uh, I was dying when it, when this film had its, we'll call it its last action hero moment, even though it was made before Last Action Hero, where the, the little kid to pass the message runs into the funeral and everybody in the church turns around with a gun to the kid. And it's like, it's like, no, my sons, put away yeah, your instruments of death and look at me. It's like, what? Because that was like a spoof scene. It's like a straight, straight film. Like, I was well, dying. And I like it too, because that's the scene where Paul Kersey wants to get his message to the Michael Parks character, you know, the, the Tommy O fucking Shay gangster. So how does he do it? He has a child run into a gangster's funeral at full speed <laughs> yeah, to get like, oh, I'll just put this kid in danger. What? Like, but the, here's the funny part is he completely puts his kid in danger. Nothing happens to him, but his wife who he just didn't watch close enough was fucking beat up and then murdered. Like, <laughs> yeah, dude, right I, your fucking priorities are so weird, Paul. That's all I'm saying here. Uh, Jesus. But it's, 
dude, there's so many scenes too where like like that like I mentioned earlier about the scene with Robert Joy and the soccer ball, but it's like not only does he have this dude chasing the ball around his house, then he stops it, then the dude picks it up and he's all confused. Yeah, and he's literally and he's like, Hey Freddy, your day's gonna be a real blow up job, like or whatever the fuck he's saying. Then he well, he's like, he's like, uh, I'm gonna help you with that dandruff problem. Oh yeah, because there, <laughs> there's this constant thing where he has like hair issues. Freddie like, flakes. Hey, hey Freddie, I'm gonna help you with that dandruff problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the most fucking stupid. Scene. It's so stupid that it is fucking brilliant. Yeah, like it was, it was again as we always say. Enter, my F and E hate you. Fun and entertaining. Yes, and, and it's again, it's called Death Wish Five. So like, if you're going into this being like, I don't understand why this wasn't Terms of Endearment. It's Death Wish Five. Like, what did you yeah. think this was gonna? Be? If you weren't on board, why are you here? Like, it just is what it is. But, uh, but the J, this one has a good one here. At least the one that I found. Uh, give us a tagline for this bad boy. All right. Well, first off, did we say the the, the uh, subtitle "Death Wish Five: The Face of Death"? Yeah, I brought it up uh, during okay, the original yeah, thought, because in, in case you weren't clear to make that, sure that the point of this movie is just death, we have to hammer it in on the title alone. Yeah, <laughs> which is is just ridiculous. But the one I have, hate you, and I'm sure it's similar to yours because it's on the main poster. Death Wish Five: No Judge, No Jury, No Appeals. No deals, aka how current policing's done in America. So, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, it's like Jesus. Dread. Yeah, it's like maybe Death Wish movies are not what you should be showing at the police academy. But what do I know? Um, but yeah, that's the same one that I have. And as you know, we do a five star rating scale. This one's not going to be setting any records, but nonetheless, I'm going to still give this one three stars. I'm right with you on that one. Hey, yeah, three stars. So there you go for Thursday Night Prime this week. But next week, join us on the show because the fun with Bronson is not over. We're going to go back and we're going to look at one of his most notorious canon films. He doesn't play Paul Kersey, but he basically plays Paul Kersey. This one is called 10 to Midnight. You're not going to want to miss this one. I promise you this is going to be great and hilarious and all that kind of stuff because this is the most balls out, goofy fucking Bronson movie I've ever seen. Um, And we're going to cover that right here on the show next week. So we are going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to do the show wrap up. And the Jay is going to have everything that we need to hear about all those goofs that we all come to know, love, and hate, I so so speak. So uh, we are going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, uh, it's time for all that stuff. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. IWC Wrestling presents The Eliminator live Saturday, April 24th at 1 p.m. at the Brownsville Drive-In at 6229 National Pike in Grindstone, Pennsylvania. All tickets, general admission, just $25. All spectators at the event are required to wear masks and masks at all times. Again, that is April 24th, Saturday, 1 p.m. IWC presents The Eliminator. Hey, everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Geeks or Geeks. And we're back, and the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? Well, we say it week in and week out, hey, on episode 67 of the What's Real Podcast, Goofs or Goose segment is no different. 
still tons of goose here on planet earth and in the year 2021 as we record of course and the first such goof is of course nfl struggling star if you will in quotes i guess at this point alden smith already wanted for allegedly assaulting a man days after signing with the seattle seahawks if you saw this story I heard something about it, but it kind of like I, I didn't see details or anything. And it's just one of those things where it's like after the, the Aaron Donald thing popped up, it's like, dude, what is wrong with some of these dudes? Like, just uh, I mean, stay away from people. An arrest warrant has been issued in Louisiana for Alden Smith, a former Dallas Cowboy player who recently signed with the Seahawks. Smith, 31, is wanted for second degree battery after allegedly attacking a man at the French Press Coffee House in Chalmay on Saturday night. Hate you. So there you go. I mean, of all things, a freaking professional football player is destroying somebody at the French press coffee house. In the, as we say on the podcast, Chalmay. Yeah, the Chalmay coffee hand. But yeah, we just have, that's why the segment's called Goofs or Goose. And Alden Smith, you are a goof. Indeed. Stay out of trouble, bruh. Next up, one of our friends of the show, as you and I know really well, hey, yeah, Vin Diesel himself uh, yes. will play <laughs> will play a father who, along with his son, bonds with a robot in a film adaptation of the classic toy Rock'em Sock'em Robots. See, I, I don't like this. I feel it's inappropriate for people to keep calling him Vin when I think people need to call him by his full name. What's that? Vehicle identification number Diesel. Good point. Yes. It's it's disrespectful, really. I mean, fine. He's going to star in a new live-action film based on Rock'em Sock'em Robots, the latest in the burgeoning list of films based on classic children's toys. Uh, that's a great thing to look forward to. Hey, yeah, I mean, didn't they do this with that Hugh Jackman movie, Real Steel? Yeah. It's like but, 10 but that, years old at this point, which is nuts. Yeah, but that was more fleshed out. We just need a story. Like, because, you know, I always saw Rock'em Sock'em Robots and thought, boy, there's way more of a story there than just two plastic fucking things that hit each other. With Vin Diesel. Like, he'll fill the time. Like, like come on, son. Play the Rock'em. I, I literally hope it's a two, two hour long movie about people playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots. It's like The Wizard, but with Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Like, remember the wizard with with Fred Savage, you know, instead of Nintendo, it's just rock. The debut of Super Mario 2, (laughs) or 3, I think it was. Vin Diesel goes on a fucking worldwide tour with his little slow brother, and he's fighting in all these Rock'em Sock'em Robot tournaments to get to the grand finale in Orlando, Florida. Yeah, and they said he's working with, like, a Himalayan trainer to get jacked for the role for no reason. They're like, Vin, you're not even a... We're not even going to see your torso. I don't care. Like, well, we kind of wanted you to play a fat man, but never mind. <laughs> yeah. like, what the fuck? Like, is he get like, dude, this is the thing. Like, who in the fuck thinks that anyone really wants to see a movie about Rock'em Sock'em Like, hasn't the nostalgia period for Rock'em Sock'em Robots died out, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'd rather see He Man personally, but like, dude, I'm did sure you that's even, around the corner too. Like, correct me if I'm wrong here. Like, we're both 40 years old. Jared's 41, but like, dude, did you play with Rock'em Sock'em Robots? Because that was like my my uncle's generation <laughs> yeah, before us. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, like I knew what they were, but I never had some. Like, we didn't play with them and shit. It wasn't. I don't. Know, yeah, I think like somebody bought them. They bought them for my son Jace like years ago. He broke them like the first time he played them and moved on. <laughs> you know? That makes sense. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know, you know, if Cam could put in like the, the DJ thing, like, <laughs> but this is have goof. It is goof exploitation to the max. Hey, as we are wrapping up episode 67's goof for goofs or goof segment with the Jake Paul and Ben Askren fight card on Triller Flight Club. That was the shit show of all shit shows. Shout out to Hey Ed and I's really good mutual friend Hutch. Hutch was over. We watched this. And we just both thought we were on shrooms when neither of us did shrooms. Dude, who was the commentator? Wasn't it more Ronaldo or something? It was somebody. The, dude, they had a million commentators. Well, no, it the, was like the main. Basically, what I was going to say, Mario there, Lopez, I think there was a main commentator who was sober, and no one else was. Everyone <laughs> yeah, else was either stoned or drunk or didn't when, know when what Mario play. Lopez is pretty much doing the best color commentary for the boxing matches. You know there's an issue. This reminds me of 1987 when me and Preppy fought in the hallway. Like, <laughs> yeah. Shut the fuck up, Mario. I mean, up, you got on. Pete Davidson was on there for no reason. He was Everybody just- smoking weed on camera. Hammered. Did you see? So there was a thing. I don't know what the fuck this was. I just saw the clip. So I guess they had people like Pete Davidson or whatever go in and interview people before their fight. And him. Yeah, like in the locker room. Yeah, him and some other dude went in and they interviewed jake paul or was it jake paul yeah okay so he flat out was like so man how you been holding up after the sexual assault allegations (laughs) and it just got dead serious and quiet i'm like dude dude, you could not write this Uh, on top of it daniel cormier was kind of on twitter like, um, you know, doing his own kind of like takes on everything as it went. And he was killing me because he was just like, I cannot take my eyes off this train wreck um, throughout the middle of it out of nowhere. Because obviously I didn't read anything going into it. I didn't know the fucking card lineup. They're like, next up on the Thriller Fight Night, we're having the slap contest with guest referee, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Yeah, and I heard that. To, and I'm like, why did I, I'm like, why did I'm like, I not know about this? I'm like, what in the hell is going on? Then, of course, the ring announcer for the main event is a how can you pass it up with the money these goose, I guess, are throwing around is is the the legend himself, uh, Michael Buffer. And he introduces Ben Askren as Ben Askew. It's, okay. <laughs> it's like Ben Askew. You, 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 Askren looks at him all weird. You mean <laughs> like, to tell like, me that the guy that years ago said Coming down the aisle, Brett, the hitman Clark would fuck up yeah. Ben Askren's name. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I, yeah, not surprised. Dude, hey, this is a dude that gets paid six figures to say, let's get to ready say to that. rumble, but he can't get people's names right. Like, come yeah, and on. Then, uh, Oscar De La Hoya made a fool out of himself. He He's, was blacked out. It's I heard he was coked out of his mind. I don't know. He was probably on numerous barbiturates and dude. That just re- that reminds me. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, there was I guess like last year, like Dana White was doing a press conference. They're like, "Hey, what do you think about uh, your friend Oscar De La Hoya getting back in the fight game?" And he goes, "What do I think about it?" And they were like, "Yeah." And he was like, "Cocaine's expensive." <laughs> 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 and of like, course, for those that don't know, Jake Paul TKO'd Ben Askren in the second round of the fight, knocking him out. Uh, the, I mean, the ref stopped it, but you know, knocked him down. That had to be uh, fixed. Like, there's yeah, no way ridiculous. that was legitimate. 
Um, and then Paul said uh, after the fight, it's been four months. I've been training. I've been training camp every day. I deserve this shit. I don't know how many times I have to prove myself that this is for real. And as one of the first people on Twitter said, dude, you're a boxer more than three, three fights, <laughs> especially against fucking goofs. Yeah, it's like, dude, look, I should be the world's most dangerous man. I beat an under underachieving MMA dude. I beat up a former NBA point guard. Like, what do I need to prove? Like, I don't know. Fight a fucking boxer and beat him. Like, what the fuck? Uh, I don't How much does he weigh? Do you have any idea how much this dude weighs? I'd guess 150s. That's just a complete guess. Dude, do you realize the dudes at 150 that would eat this motherfucker's lunch? I mean, dudes with like the, like, now I'm the, okay. Let me make this clear. Jake Paul is not a fighter. Like he might be trying to train in boxing and he's doing pretty well. I give him some credit and he does have some knockout power. These dudes would work his ass all day long. I mean, dudes that are in a hundred times better shape than him. Dudes that throw a hundred percent faster yes, punches than him. You couldn't be more like, right. Come on. I mean, dude, what's boxing called? The J? What's the nickname of boxing? Sweet science. Why do they call it that? Because it's much more than people think than just throwing hands and fighting. You're it's, goddamn it's right. It's muscle memory. It's training. It's fucking yeah, cardio. Reaction and, yeah, it's tons of shit. And dudes and, don't get to, like, do you know how many professional fighters, like Evander Holyfield's like a, a legendary fighter, even Mike Tyson, right? These dudes fought in the Olympics and came up and all that shit before they exactly. even got known around the world. This dude's had three fights against non-pro boxers. And he's like, what do I need to do? To prove myself. Well, where do you need me to start? <laughs> well, and as I called myself a goof on last week's episode, because I call a spade a spade and I'm transparent here on the show. Hey, Ed, I had a horrific guess at the 150 weight because I jumped on the Google machines and supposedly Jake Paul and Ben Askren weighed around 190 to 200 pounds. Oh, Jake so Paul weighed in at 191.8. Okay, now I get it because you're basically fighting heavyweight. Heavyweight. Yeah, he would die. Yeah, which heavyweight you think he's going to beat up, dude? Yeah, you, I, I couldn't name Like, one. seriously, you think Anthony Joshua would lose to him? Uh, no. Like, these dudes would murder this motherfucker. It's not even close. Like, he has, oh, a, and he has a little bit of knockout power, right? These are dudes that knock motherfuckers out every fight. Every fight. Yeah. Like, good boxers get knocked the fuck out. This dude's knocked he, out a point guard and a fucking... MMA fighter who never really did much of anything. Let's be honest. I remember him from Ultimate Fighter. I don't even think he's ever won a championship in UFC. Yeah, and the thing is, it's one of those, he found his niche. And just like with anything, now all these dudes want to fight him. And this thing supposedly made over $10 million in uh, counting. And that's what happens. You know, they follow the money and he's kind of becoming... You know, I'm not obviously not comparing him to Mayweather's boxing, but May, the Mayweather heel status. Yeah, like boy, everybody hey. in America wants to punch him in the face or see him get knocked out now. Shout so that's going to make him money. He's only 24. To the boxers in his weight class, go get that money. Yeah. Beat like his lions ass. on a carcass. Yeah, go get it, dude. That's a big fat paycheck waiting for some dude to just come take it. So to sum it up, hey, you know, this event on Thriller Fight Club was over three hours and 58 minutes, almost four hours long, had performances by Justin Bieber, which was horrible. And we thought what? that he was done after two songs. And he was like, no, guys, I was just kidding. Here's my third song. 
pulled off my new album and did a third song. Saweetie was there, Doja Cat, the Black Keys for no reason. Uh, and then Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, E-40, and Too Short did a super group performance. Oh, yeah, Mount West Side. You can't write It's this something like out. that. It's dude. I, I no, actually Mount, visited Mount Westside. Mount, Mount Westmore is what it's called. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They're I coming out there. with a, they're coming out with an album and everything, which I think is really weird. But dude, all I want to know, I guess I need to do my homework, but maybe you have, so I'll pose the question to you. Who the fuck is the money behind Triller, dude? Because it's somebody with big bucks. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but I know we, we've kind of discussed it on the pod where Tyson did that first fight with them and then backed out and started his Legends company. So he had some sort of, I don't know how, you know, if it was a mutual thing, if it was a falling out, if it was just a business decision. But I think that's what was causing the trouble in communication between the Tyson camp and the Holyfield camp to set up uh, their next fight that they're trying to put together because Tyson was no longer involved with Triller. And I guess... Um, the other camp was at the time or something, but I, I think they dumped that and they're trying to work something out with his legend league. So it's, you know, again, Hey Ed, you know, it is, it's all money and money grabs, but yeah, to answer your question, not sure what, where the money's coming from for the Triller fight club shit here. Yeah. I'd love to know, but they're making it. I'll tell you that because again, it's saying the fight yanked millions of viewers and it was a shit show that everybody's talking about. And this might be the longest singular segment, of the goose or goose that we talked about something, which that's why I did the <laughs> because man, when you're talking goofs, this was uh, the show of the goofs, but very entertaining. It was fun watching with Hutch because we, you know, we're getting ready for 420. If you want to hit what I'm smoking, yeah, I do. So pass it over here. <laughs> As I say to my brother from another mother, hey, yeah, between the shit show of the Triller Fight Club to Vin Diesel starring in Rockin' Robots and everything we talk about here on Goose or Goose, Goose are Goose. So that is it for us this week, guys. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Of course, if you guys are listening on iTunes, we would appreciate a five-star review. You can check us out on all your favorite podcasting platforms every week, such as Apple iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course, every week on ChurchillPictures.com. And before we get out of here, I hear the Jays revving it up, brother, so take it away. Revving it up like Ben Askren, or I should say Ben Askrew's head hitting the canvas. Hey, you all <laughs> pumped up as always, man. It's been a great show. I'll just throw the classic line out. Steve McQueen in it, the great escape from pandemic living, just spending time with my boys. It's been a blast as usual. Love the show. Shout out to the wizard behind the boards. Got to shout out Cam every week for all the hard work he does and the great work he does. Crystal clear 8K sound. Love it. And as we say, leading the charge here, the J in this these this crazy day and age, stay safe, stay healthy. You'll hear the J next week. So that is it for our episode this week, episode 67. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Obviously, thanks goes to you, the J, for sitting down here with me each and every week as we do. There's nobody else I'd rather do it with, brother. And shout out to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts on the show because we all know that nobody beats the whiz so that is it for us this week guys don't forget to join us next week here on the show for episode 68 we're just one more away from episode 69 if you will so if you know what that yeah. means you know uh but join us next week here for episode 68 that's all for us guys so stay safe stay healthy get vaccinated and we'll see you right here next week on the what's real podcast what's real